It's in the news almost every day. In the news, and we're not talking about some far off place somewhere, but in our news, right here locally, in our immediate area, we hear about murders and attempted murders. I mean, it ha- it's, it's in the news constantly. Sadly, it seems like that sort of thing is on an exponential increase in our day and time. A few of those murders that happen uh, are never solved. Uh, that's a sad situation, but it's just a fact. Sometimes murders happen and, and the killer is never found out. But most often, in a significantly high percentage of cases, the murders are solved. And the reason why they are solved is because the perpetrators of those murders are pretty sloppy in their work. Their planning and the way they carry out their crimes uh, are, are discoverable. Uh, they leave easily traceable evidence. Uh, their methods and their motives are discovered and they are found and they are arrested. Today we want to talk about a murderer. In fact, he's more than just a murderer. He is a serial killer. We want to talk about a serial killer, but not any physical murderer. We want to talk about a spiritual killer. We want to talk about our great enemy, Satan. He is uh, in the business of killing people spiritually. He's certainly after each of us individually. You remember well 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We use this verse a lot, and I think it's an important verse for us to keep in mind. We have this real adversary, Satan, and he is absolutely tireless in his efforts. He is working constantly. We, we could say he's working 24-7, 365, as the expression goes. He is constantly trying to undo us spiritually. He wants to kill us spiritually. If if you are trying to serve God faithfully, know that you are in His sights. And He is after you and He wants to get you. He, He wants to kill you. That's true of Satan in his murderous ways. He is after each one of us individually. But I want to suggest to you that he's not just interested in spiritually killing individual Christians, he is also really interested in killing off whole congregations of people. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Unto the angel of the church at Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. So here's a case where he was successful. He's frequently successful. Satan is after not just individuals, but he's after whole congregations of people. And he exceeds, he succeeds in accomplishing his purposes. I wonder through the centuries how many congregations of God's people Satan has killed off. I'm sure it's not a few. Uh, I've known of some, I think, and you probably do too. Some congregations that just died. Satan succeeded in killing them off. Uh, So, how does he do it? What are the methods that he uses? For a few minutes this morning, I want to study together with you about some things Satan will do, methods that he will employ, things he will try in order to kill off a local congregation of God's people. Now, obviously, this is not just a philosophical or theological discussion. This is a study about what could happen to us Right here in this local church, things Satan 
can do and will do and is doing in an effort to kill us off. And we've got to be on guard against that. Things Satan will do to kill a church. That will be our study for a few minutes this morning. Thanks for being here today. We are blessed beyond measure to be able to come together on this Lord's Day to worship God and study from His Word. We have a good crowd of people gathered together. We've got some visitors with us. We're glad that you've come our way. It's certainly a blessing, and we need to never take it for granted. Thank you for being here to be a part of it and for the encouragement that you lend to all the rest of us. As we study together this morning, a couple of things that I would encourage you to do. Listen carefully, uh, especially to the scriptures that are referenced, and make sure that they're being used accurately. We know, we're very aware of the fact that the scriptures can be perverted, twisted, misused. And we don't want to be guilty of that. And if there's any indication that we have maybe not used the scripture accurately, please bring that to our attention. Uh, If there's any question remaining in your mind after we've studied together, bring that to our attention so we can study it more thoroughly. We want to get the most out of our time in the Word of God. And so if if that uh, requires some additional attention, we'll certainly do that. What are some of the things that Satan will do in his effort, not just to get at an individual Christian like you or me, but what are some of the things that he, that he will try to do to get at a whole congregation of people? Well, let me suggest to you that, first of all, he will employ persecution. Now, we know uh, that this was his first attempt way back in the first century. Uh, there was a concerted effort to stop the cause of Christ. And persecution was severe and it was intense with the very purpose of just eradicating Christianity from the globe. And persecution was the tool that was used. We understand and we're grateful for the fact that this is not a a, a great issue where we live and in our time. But I want to suggest to you that Satan still uses this tool. Uh, We are fairly insulated from it but there are other places in the world even today where persecution is very strong and lots of us have talked about the fact that could be so that even here for us persecution could arise satan uses persecution in his effort to squelch the cause of christ look at this example that stephen read for us earlier the lord was writing to the church at smyrna He says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Notice, the Lord was telling them that some of them would end up being imprisoned. Notice, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. He didn't say it was a possibility. He said, it's going to happen right there. Right there in Smyrna, some of you will be cast into prison. But he says, I want you to be faithful unto death, even if it comes to the point that you might die for the cause. Persecution up to the point of death was a reality for those first century Christians. Again, it's not our reality, at least not right now, but it could be. And if it comes, we should not be surprised by it. If our persecution increases, if things get very hard for us as the people of God, we should not be surprised. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. He says, if, if, it, if persecution arises, don't, don't think, wow, nobody's ever known this before. Now, this is strange. I'm not, I, I don't understand why we'd be treated this way. 
He says, don't think it's strange. Uh, we've lived in, in a time of great freedom and liberty, and we should be grateful for that. But if that changes, we'd simply be experiencing what Christians through the centuries have experienced. It would not be new. It would not be a strange thing. When persecution comes, there's, there's obviously two potential reactions to persecution. One of them is to give up, surrender, to be silenced by the persecution. And we know that that has happened. In John chapter 12, verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So here were some people who reacted very badly when pressure was put upon them. They went silent. They refused to confess Jesus because they knew if they did, They'd be put out of the synagogue, and that was a very serious thing, by the way, in that, in that place and time. If you were put out of the synagogue, it not only excluded you from where people went to worship, but it also made it very hard for you to, to buy and sell and to, and to trade in those communities if you had been put out of the synagogue. That was, that was a pretty severe thing. And some of these people didn't want that to happen to them. And so even though they believed in Jesus, they wouldn't vocally acknowledge their faith in him. They wouldn't confess him because they feared that persecution. That's one of the potentials. And we've got to be careful that it wouldn't be that way for us. If persecution arises, are you going to go silent? Are you going to stop acknowledging your faith in Jesus Christ? Are you going to be taken out of commission by the per- persecution? That's a possibility. Satan would love for that to happen. The other reaction uh, to persecution is to realize that it's a chance to give our all for the most worthy cause. In Matthew, or excuse me, Acts chapter 5, beginning verse 42, when the Jewish council had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus. Here's the other end of that spectrum, right? In the previous verse, they went quiet. They, 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 they shut up. They didn't speak because they were afraid of persecution. In this instance, they kept right on teaching and preaching, and they were grateful for the opportunity to suffer for the cause of Christ. What would it be for us? I want to suggest to you, Satan uses persecution. And it may very well be our test in the future. How will we react to it? Uh, how will, will we be performing if we're tested by severe persecution? I think we really need to get ready for that. We need to have our hearts determined right now. No wait for the moment of trial. Be ready right now. No matter what happens, be ready to be faithful to the Lord. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus said, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. A couple of things there in Jesus' statement. One is that if we're faithful and if we, if we resist persecution, God will bless us for doing what is right. But another thing that I think is really interesting in that statement is that we would actually be in the good company of God's faithful people who lived in times past. If they persecute us, know that we're just in the same company with those faithful prophets of God, even in the Old Testament, who were persecuted for taking a stand for what was right. Satan uses persecution. 
not just against individual Christians, but against whole congregations of people. Now, I want you to stop for a minute and think about this. Persecution is not really totally successful as a tool. Satan's use of persecution, although he certainly has used it, but his use of persecution hasn't really worked tremendously well for him. It's worked to some extent, but it's not a perfect tool. Because if you remember well, Christianity grew rapidly even in the face of its most intense persecutions. And so Satan will use persecution and he'll succeed in some measure, but he won't get everybody. He won't get every church. So does he just give up? You know, so here's, here's a congregation. This congregation is determined we will, we will stand. In the face of persecution, we will continue to do what's right. So he's just going to give up? No. He's not going to give up. He'll try a number of other things. Another of the tools that he will use is false teaching. Go back with me to Revelation, again, verse 2. This time to the church at Pergamos. Here's a church that endured persecution. They handled it. They dealt with it. And they saw it through. Under the, to the angel of the church at Pergamos, write, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name, hast not denied my faith. Notice, even in those days when Antipas, my faithful martyr, was slain among you. So stop there for a minute. Here's a church who had suffered real intense persecution. The Lord even names one Christian there who was martyred for the cause of Christ. And so he says, you all did well. You're to be commended for that. But notice as it goes on. He says, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So I want you to really get this. Here's a church that faced persecution and endured it, even to the point that one of their members was killed for the cause of Christ, and they stayed they stayed the course. Satan wasn't successful getting them with persecution. He didn't give up. Instead, he decided he'd take this church down by, by allowing or promoting the spread of false doctrine. We don't know particularly. We, we got some pretty good guesses, but it's not really critical to know what the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans were. It doesn't really matter. They were false doctrines. Notice the Lord even said, I hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It was false doctrine. It was false teaching. And so to a church that was strong against persecution, he came at them with false doctrine and he succeeded. You know, Satan doesn't care if a congregation goes through the motion of religious activity as long as that religious activity is unauthorized, as long as that religious activity is in error. Satan knows that God demands precise obedience. Satan knows that. And so if he can get people, if he can get churches to accept and practice error, then he's achieved his purpose. Because God won't be pleased if we're not obeying him according to his will. If if we're not doing what the scriptures teach us in the way that it teaches us to do those things, Satan has accomplished his purposes. There are so many warnings about this in Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, There were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Notice, here again, Peter's talking about false teachers 
And, and he says they're going to be successful in large measure. He says many shall follow their pernicious ways. So Satan has got this tool. It's a pretty effective tool. Persecution doesn't always work, but false teaching works pretty good too. I'll throw that in, he says. And many will follow their pernicious ways. Peter says it would be effective. Because of this reality, Paul gave the evangelist Timothy a special assignment. In 2 Timothy 4, beginning verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fable. Notice, he says the time is coming, they will not endure sound doctrine. False teaching will succeed in some instances. We've got to be careful to never let that be an effective tool of Satan here in this local congregation. Persecution, false teaching. Again, Satan's using these tools, but maybe maybe here's a congregation that stands against that as well. He's not going to give up. What else will he do? Well, let me suggest to you that Satan also uses internal strife in a local congregation to try to destroy it. If, if, if external forces uh, don't work, maybe he can get us to destroy ourselves from within. And that's an effective tool too, and he will use it. Remember when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, it hath been declared unto me, uh, it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. We know this story pretty well there in 1 Corinthians. The, the book of 1 Corinthians just goes on to catalog all the different things that were wrong at Corinth. They had a world of trouble, but a lot of it was internal. They were bickering and fighting with one another. Uh, Satan was getting his job done. Satan had to be pleased with what was going on at Corinth. In chapter 3, verse 1, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you are not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Notice what was going on at Corinth. Envying, strife, divisions. This internal contention and strife in Corinth was keeping them from being effective in serving God. Satan was really using that internal trouble at Corinth to effectively squelch any good that that congregation might accomplish. Now, that's not the only church that's ever had internal strife. That's not the only church that was severely hampered and hindered in their work for the Lord because of internal strife. I'll tell you, that has happened way too many times in way too many places for almost 2,000 years now. Satan has caused trouble within local churches as a way of, of killing them off. We've got to be on guard. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You know, that happens, doesn't it? Christians in a local congregation bite and devour one another, they end up being consumed by one another. Churches die because of internal strife. Satan effectively uses that tool. 
I'll tell you something else that really works well, and that is worldliness. Works well for Satan's purposes. Satan's purposes are to kill us off, individually and collectively as a congregation. He'd like to see us die. And worldliness is a really good tool for him to use against us, particularly. Because in our case, as we've, as we've pointed out so many times, we live in the most uh, affluent time in history, of all the history of the world, of all the civilizations and peoples of the world. We are the most materially blessed people that have ever lived. And Satan has been able to use that to distract us, you know, to, to take our eye off the goal, to keep us from following God devotedly and faithfully. He throws material things in our path and, and, and challenges us, tempts us to pursue those kinds of things. In James chapter 4, verse 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is the enemy of God? In enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James is saying here you can't have it both ways. By the way, of course, when he's talking about adulterers and adulteresses, he's talking about spiritual adultery. We're to be wedded to the Lord, but when we are unfaithful to our relationship with the Lord, we are spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. He says this friendship of the world is enmity with God. You can't have it both ways. We need to be smart enough to realize that. Can you imagine, just as an example of this, can you imagine a husband wants his wife to agree that she will let him have a girlfriend? Now, we're going to stay married, he says, but I want you to agree to let me have a girlfriend. How many wives are going to agree to that? No wife, no, no right-thinking wife would agree to that. No way, right? Well, why would we think that the Lord says, yeah, it's okay with me. You can be wedded to me, but you can still engage the world. It wouldn't please us as people. It certainly doesn't please God, this spiritual adultery. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, all the things that tempt us are listed. 1 John 2, beginning verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. There's two aspects to worldliness. I think they are both seen in this text. One aspect of worldliness is, is the immorality of the world around us. And, and certainly, uh, that's very prevalent. Uh, all kinds of horrible immorality exist in the world, and, and we're around it. We're exposed to it. It tempts us. But also materialism uh, is a form of worldliness. Some people have referred to materialism as respectable worldliness, you know. So here's a guy, and he's, he's forsaking his spiritual duties to God. He's neglecting all the things he ought to be doing. But he's really not condemned for that because he's just a hard worker. Uh, he's just planning for the future. He just wanted to take good care of himself and his family financially. So he forsakes his spiritual duty in the pursuit of materialism, but that's sort of a respectable kind of worldliness. Satan would love for us to view it that way, that it's okay for us to forsake our duties in that sense. If, we, if he could convince us of that, he has won his day. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, 
Paul says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be not conformed to this world. That's what Satan wants. He wants us to be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Satan would use worldliness against us individually and against us collectively. That's one of his great tools. Finally, let me suggest to you that one of Satan's most powerful tools is indifference. This is more subtle. This is is a more subtle thing, but it's certainly a tool that Satan would use. Indifference. If we go back to Revelation again, those seven churches of Asia give such great examples to us. And in this case, we're, we're talking about what the Lord said to the church at Ephesus. He said, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them that are evil and hast tried them that say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars and has borne and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. You know, all of this initially that he said to, to Ephesus was so good. They, they, everything seemed so praiseworthy for Ephesus. But they had lost their zeal and enthusiasm for serving God. They had grown indifferent spiritually. And the Lord held that against them, even though they were still going through a lot of the right motions religiously. They had lost their zeal, their enthusiasm. They had become indifferent. Probably the best known statement of this sort in those letters to the seven churches is what was said to the church at Laodicea. The Lord says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. This is the classic statement about apathy and indifference in a local church. Notice again, though, I want to really stress, this is not something stated to individual Christians. This was stated to a whole collective congregation of people. They were lukewarm. Satan had them right where he wanted them, right? The Lord was prepared to spew them out of his mouth, he said, because they were being lukewarm Christians. That sort of indifference can kill a church. It does kill a church. It could kill this church if we allow ourselves to become spiritually indifferent, lukewarm. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, the Hebrew writer says, We desire that every one of you should show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promise. He says, exercise diligence, be not slothful. Don't grow indifferent, apathetic about the important work we have to do as God's people. Well, here are five things, five tools that are in Satan's tool bag. He doesn't try just one because sometimes one, just one of these tools uh, employed against a, a particular congregation doesn't work. As we said earlier, persecution doesn't always work. And so maybe false teaching will. If false teaching doesn't get it, maybe he can cause the church to be all torn up internal, internally with all kind of strife and contention. Definitely worldliness works against many Christians and against whole churches. Maybe indifference or apathy he could get us. In one way or another, Satan is trying to kill this church. If you knew that there was a serial killer on the loose... Right here in our immediate community, if you knew there was a serial killer on the loose, what would you do? Well, certainly you'd take all reasonable precautions, right? If, if, it was, if there was a serial killer working right in our immediate community, 
Well, I'm suggesting to you that there is a serial killer at work. Not a physical one, but a spiritual one. And we need to be on our guard. Don't let him use his methods, as we've tried to explain them this morning. Don't let him use those methods to destroy any of us individually or this congregation collectively. Satan is a tireless enemy. He's always working to accomplish his goals, and we need to be aware of that and be on guard. As we bring the lesson to close, we're going to sing a song of invitation. What's your situation this morning? Are you right with God? Is your life right with God? Have you obeyed that simple gospel plan of salvation? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized for the remission of sins. If you've not done that, we hope you'll make that decision. We'll be glad to study more with you if you have questions that need to be answered. If you already have obeyed the gospel, you are a Christian, but you've not been faithful to the Lord. We beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.